I'm uh, uh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Jen. Minji. <laughs> Standard issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 292 of the Standard Issue Podzine. Settling in nicely to our new home at Audi. Thank you very much. Oh. Come see us. Mm. I'm Mingy Noonan. Yes, I've had this fucking cold so long, I've just decided to make it part of my personality now. So when you said 292, I thought, oh, we're nearly at 300. Let's see if you still have this cold at 300. I'm not going to waste my money, Hannah. It's probably a yes. <laughs> What's that, about four weeks away? Yeah, yeah. Oh, wowzers. It's just annoying. I'm just so bored now. I'm so bored of it. It goes, it comes back. It's like a boomerang. Oh, dear. Sympathies. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Coming up, there's a flicking in which you can actually enjoy me and Mickey being really ill in in real time. (laughs) Anyway, I'm (laughs) Hannah Dunleavy, and you can take your sourdough bread and you can shove it. Absolutely not. I refuse. What is wrong with you? It's not just because you don't like hipsters, is it, Hannah? There's an actual reason. It's not. So I, I tried sourdough bread in uh, lockdown when everyone was being mental about She's it. She's the bravest little girl in the world. And I had a bit of a bloated stomach the next day and I thought it would be the sourdough bread. And then everyone said to me, no, sourdough bread is really good for you. It's like full of like probiotics and stuff. It's not like gluteny bread. I mean, it has still got gluten in it, but apparently it's got like good yeasts and stuff that actually encourage good bacteria to grow in your stomach as opposed to bad bacteria. And so I thought, oh, I'm, I must have eaten something else. You know, it must have been that rancid roadkill I was chewing Probably on that, that gave fox me the bad you belly. picked up in the garden. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> anyway, so the other day I went to the shop and they only had sour bread and I bought it and I had two slices of it and I literally like swelled up like a big... A big barrel. My stomach was really hard, and then I threw up for three days. Yeah, not nice. Not nice at all. Anyway, I googled and I found an awful lot of people saying I had some sourdough bread and I've had diarrhoea for a week. So actually, I think I escaped quite lightly compared to how some people react to the good bacteria. I mean, it's probably got bacteria in it because it is obviously fermented yeast and various things. But like, I don't know. I mean, maybe people have done more research into this than I have thinking about this for the first time now. I'm Jen Offord and I'm wondering who at BBC News sanctioned the use of, and I quote, sex jams. In what context, Jen? Well, Hannah, I'm sure you'll be aware of the fact that it was the Super Bowl last night and the main performer of the halftime show was Bob Carroll G's. <laughs> and Spit the Duck. <laughs> None other than Usher Raymond III, who is known for his, uh, you know, slightly sultry tones and uh, a few a few other things and a BBC wrote an article about it and I was like who wrote this and they said the singer switched effortlessly between the two apexes of his music club anthems and sex jams <laughs> it sounds like the WI's gone rogue doesn't it yeah this week ladies were making sex jams I think that is very partridgean kind of a vibe what's a sex jam does he mean slow jam i think that's no, an accepted I think it's a term. slow jam that's about sex yeah or might lead to sex if you put it on your playlist at bedtime well any usher can lead to sex let me tell you <laughs> <laughs> not in this house mate not in this house i <laughs> could never find anything usher does sexy not least because my friend chris beanland's I love this story so much. <laughs> My friend Chris Beeman once went to interview him and when he met Usher, 
Usher put his hand out to shake Chris's hand and Chris shook his hand and then Usher refused to let go. And so he had to do the whole interview holding hands with Usher. (laughs) (laughs) Can't believe he was the... The Super Bowl, the Super Bowl is massive. They had Beyonce, they've had Missy Elliott. I could not name you one Usher song. I could name quite a few, but we that is more my genre. <laughs> Musical circles. We do. But do you know what Beyonce did? Did she gate crash? Someone sent me a tweet this morning that said that Beyonce basically just proposed at Usher's wedding. <laughs> she had an advert with like a phone company in the middle of the Super Bowl. And during the advert, she announces her new album is on the way and releases two new songs. And I am absolutely here for the astonishing cuntiness of that. (laughs) I'm here for it. Well done, Queen Bay. So, wow, Sex Jams. It's making me think of that song you like by Tom Jones. Sex Bomb, yeah. Yeah. Oh, I love Sex Bomb. just changed lyrics to Sex Jams. Sex Jams, Sex Jams, But Hannah is not allowed to put it on sourdough bread because that way Uh, lies disaster. uh, uh. Oh, dear. Nothing sexier than vomiting for three days, Vicky, I can tell you. Well, coming up, comedian Olga Koch tells me about prawn cocktail and parasocial relationships. What a dinner party. (laughs) I talked to director Ola Ince about the latest version of Othello at the Sam Wanamaker Playhouse. Saw it last week. It was really good. In Journey Off the Blocks, I'm talking allyship and football. And in Rated or Dated, we've come full circle to those sex jams, wondering, (laughs) where did you learn those moves? As we watch 1984's Footloose. But first, stop killing people, you twats. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Q-Sting. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph, where the formerly compelling cast all look desiccated and a greyish yellow and have that what's the point vibe of the multiply vaccinated. Apologies. I don't know who you're talking about. Are you talking about us? Are we desiccated (laughs) and greyish yellow? Well, yeah, I mean, I was largely beforehand. A bit better now I've stopped smoking. This was a, a tweet put out of the weekend by the formerly quite sensible and now absolutely off her head. Oh, Naomi Klein. Naomi Wolf. Naomi Klein had to write a book so that people would stop mixing her up with Naomi sorry. Wolf. Sorry, nice Naomi. She tweeted that about why she can now no longer watch Curb Your Enthusiasm. I mean... <laughs> I mean, yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> There's very little to come back to with that, isn't there? Are you okay, hon? <laughs> I remember when we were talking to Mary Beard, or when I was talking to Mary Beard about... Yeah, yeah, we didn't get to chat to her, it was all you. <laughs> about how people collate history now, because I was asking how hard would it be for someone to study this period. And she was like, well, really, you know, really difficult. You'd have to go through someone's emails and text messages, whereas at least you just, in the old days, you just had to read their diary or get hold of their letters. You'd Uh learn quite a lot about it. So there's a really clear trial on her Twitter account of the decline of our once interesting mind. It's sad, isn't it? It's sad. Naomi Wolf, not Mary Beard. Mary Beard continues to be having an interesting (laughs) mind, to be clear. I love Mary Beard. Yeah, let's be absolutely crystal about that. So, Hannah, uh, sadly, we have to move on to other news. And it is really tempting to start every Bush Telegraph with the cry, stop killing people, you twats. Maybe one week we'll do that, just all three of us in a chorus, then straight into sexism of the week. (laughs) There are too many stories I could actually be talking about with that line. But overnight, Israeli forces carried out a deadly assault on Rafah, a so-called safe zone where 1.5 million displaced Palestinians were sheltering 
So yeah, I'm talking about Gaza. Speaking to Al Jazeera, Nabal Fassah, a spokesperson for the Palestine Red Crescent Society, said, Rafa already has nearly half of Gaza's population. Since the beginning of the war in Gaza, people have been fleeing to Rafa following Israeli evacuation orders. Families have already evacuated up to 10 times. The question is, where should people go? There is no safe place at all and there is no way to evacuate. On top of that, there is a complete destruction of the infrastructure and the lack of transportation as well makes it impossible for people to make their way anywhere. Further to that, and speaking to the BBC World Service, Georgios Petropoulos, the head of the UN Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs, outlined worsening conditions, saying everyone is short of food, clean water, health services, sanitation and even basic room. He says people are living six families to one classroom and that he has seen a breakdown in the rule of law in Rafa, which, you know, isn't particularly surprising. These people, already torn apart, are sitting ducks for the most moral army in the world, as Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu affirms a planned offensive in Rafa despite growing international warnings. The problem is, this guy is so high on his own supply, he doesn't give a flying fuck about international warnings or condemnation or appeals to stop killing people, you twats. Now, at this point, I hope I don't have to clarify that I also think Hamas are despicable. Mm. They hate Jewish people. They hate women. They hate queer people. They use Palestinian people as human shields. They still have Israeli hostages taken on October the 7th and have repeatedly said no to ceasefires. Hamas cares solely about Hamas and its ideology. Something needs to be done to stop them. And no, I don't know what it is, but I do know slaughtering thousands of innocent civilians isn't it. I also hope I don't have to clarify that none of this is an excuse for any anti-Semitism because there is no excuse for anti-Semitism. Now, us here at SAFE are wondering what to do to help have kind of few practical options. Cash, obviously, always cash, and blind hope that some aid can get through, and pressure on our politicians, currently sticking their fingers in their ears as the UK continues to supply Israel with weapons. Write to them. Write to them again. It might feel futile, but change is possible. Judges in the Netherlands have just ordered the Dutch government to halt the export of F-35 fighter jet parts to Israel, citing a clear risk of violations of international law in the war in Gaza. And now please forgive me for being sort of selfish in the face of such horror, but I'm really, really worried that this is going to scupper Labour's chances in the forthcoming general election. I'm really worried it'll scupper the Democrats' chances in the US election. And it might sound melodramatic, but more years under the Conservatives and the reinstatement of Trump as POTUS is a death sentence for so many vulnerable people and a barely capable of life sentence for countless others. Yeah, agreed. I've been found myself saying this a lot to people recently. Same as you do when you're on an aeroplane and when you do with your mental health, put on your own oxygen mask before you attempt to help anybody else. Yeah, Yeah, I think it's really important to say, yeah. We need to get rid of this government. This government isn't working. And protest voting or not voting is not going to help people who are desperate in this country. And also, people who are desperate in other countries and want to come to this country will have a lot better chance under a Labour government. Exactly that, Hannah. Exactly that. Talking of the US election, of which I had planned to cover this week, 
as increasing numbers of commentators are finally acknowledging that a fight between two old men is no good for anyone unless you're watching The Untouchables. <laughs> or an old episode of The Word. I feel like <laughs> yeah. Terry Christian's referee in that one. <laughs> and to be honest, I'm struggling to come up with new analogies. It's yeah. like choosing between a sandwich made of fake tan and sexual assault accusations or one that thinks that Mitterrand still runs France. <laughs> Can I say sexual assault convictions at this point, though, Hannah? Yes, and still plenty of accusations and still loads as of accusations well. too. Oh, no, you were perfectly right. There was just more to the story. Anyway, I thought I'd take a little look at what is getting people aerated. Let's start with the Domino's <laughs> cream egg cookie, although that's clearly not a starter. It's a main course or a pudding at a push. It's breakfast and you're not my real mum. Come on. <laughs> This is disgusting, said Lord <laughs> Bethel of Romford, which is a wild title. It really is. After Domino's Pizza announced the new menu item last week, the Conservative peer continued on Twitter, but of course, <laughs> quote, these are serious corporate food companies. What are they thinking? I'm guessing they were thinking, I wonder what would happen if you put a cream egg in a biscuit. <laughs> and then they were thinking... Put the kettle on. Mm-mm-mm. Bethel wasn't alone in believing the firms, that's Domino's and Cadbury's, had essentially teamed up to create legal crack. Goes on sale today as we record, Mickey. Cuts to empty spinning chair. <laughs> Bye. And now to Scotland. No, not because they probably invented the cream egg biscuit generations ago. <laughs> I'll tell you what they also did years ago, and that was to name the cafe at Edinburgh Castle Redcoats Cafe. But after it was reopened following a refurbishment, much of Scottish Twitter, including a number of SNP politicians, erupted into what can only be described as really quite belated fury <laughs> at the choice of name. Redcoats is nothing to do with the Butlins entertainers, by the way. Oh. What sort of animal has a problem with them? True, true story. Now, feel free to go to someone better informed on Scottish history for a full explanation, but in very simple terms, it's a nickname for British infantrymen who are garrisoned at the castle and who have a reputation that has often been compared to that of the Black and Tans in Ireland. Further information that might also have been useful includes the fact that some of these men were actually Scottish and that the castle's function and dinner venue is called the Jacobite Room. I'll never eat in that cafe again, Melly yelled. <laughs> Why not call it the Hammer of the Scots Cage or Butcher Cumberland's Cafe, shouted somebody else. Oh, people. I used to pay a fortune to go into the castle just to eat expensive carrot cake in the Redcoats Cafe, but now I've realised I will never go again. Might as well be called Kick Nicola Sturgeon in the Fanny Cafe. <laughs> OK, I made that last one up. But it's not as exaggerated as you might think. In other news, Mitterrand does not run France anymore. What? Why didn't anybody tell me? Said Joe. Who does run France, Hannah? Are you alright? Is that why you want to take a moment? <laughs> uh, do you fancy a Domino's cream egg cookie, Mickey? I'd eat it. I'd eat it and then give you my thoughts on it. Yeah. Okay, maybe we'll come back with more news next week. Okay. I mean, we might both be dead and then who'll be laughing? <laughs> Lord Bethel of Romford, I'm telling yeah, you. Yeah, absolutely. It's what he wants. 
Now, Mickey, would you like some good news? Yes, please. Domino's have made this cookie, <laughs> right? Cuts to spinning chair. No, really, I do have some good news. There's also some interesting news coming out of Poland at the minute about abortion, which I promise to cover next week. I feel like this one's actually more good news for you than for me, although it's also good news for the planet Earth, and I do actually live here, contrary to all previous evidence. Yeah, the way the sun shines into Hannah's window, she could be on (laughs) Jupiter right now, to be honest, or on fire. Question. Do you know what perfluoroalkali and polyfluoroalkali substances are yeah i'm not a dimmer and by that i mean no (laughs) well they're better known as forever chemicals and as the name suggests they're virtually impossible to eliminate oh i think they're in my cold (laughs) they're added to clothing and cosmetics among other things to help make them water resistant the chemicals don't easily break down can build up in our bodies and can be toxic at high levels according to dr sean pressow who assesses hazardous substances for New Zealand's Environmental Protection Authority. You did that lot of S's really well. You assesses hazardous substances. Substances. It's a lot of S's, yeah. And now New Zealand has become the first country to ban their use in makeup. The ban will come into effect in 2026. Well done, New Zealand. I'm sure you'll all agree. And if you don't, best have a cry about it now. Well, your (laughs) mascara can still bear it. Now, was this bad news for me? Because I wear makeup and you don't? Yes. But you wear clothes. No, I meant because if you were worried that your makeup was doing damage to the environment, if this is happening in New Zealand, perhaps this is going to roll out around the world. Indeed. They like banning things in New Zealand, don't they? They do. Their smoking ban didn't go particularly to plan, did it? Let's hope this one goes better. More news next week. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where I'm so damn keen to bring you up-to-date sexism that we're going to look at some stats. I know, basically maths. Oh, God. Mm-hmm. Maths that, for women, just doesn't add up. That's all maths for me, <laughs> Girl maths. We're not even going to go into that. We'll do that one another time. In the meantime, hello there, Office of National Statistics, latest crime survey for England and Wales. What can you tell us? Well, according to the ONS's annual crime survey, violent crime and total crime have halved in England and Wales since 2010. Wow. Yeah, yes, please, right? I'm not sure I believe that, but okay. Yeah, well, wait, don't be pulling the string on your party popper just yet, Hannah, particularly because you're female. Turns out the ONS's definition of total and violent doesn't account for stalking, harassment, domestic violence, sexual assault or rape. Excuse me while I set fire to this congratulations banner. Hannah, a quick question to see if you've been paying attention the last... How old are you? 50. I am 50 years old. Have you been paying attention for the last 50 years for zero pounds? Stalking, harassment, domestic violence, sexual assault or rape are far more likely to affect... Yeah, I'm thinking I might go for women. Ding, 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 ding. The ONS told the BBC... How much did I win? Oh, for zero pounds. Absolutely fuck all, mate. Yeah. Some violence, apparently. (laughs) The ONS told the BBC, whose stats guy, Robert Cuff, broke this story, that the reason for the omission is, quote, in face-to-face interviews, victims, most commonly women 
can be unwilling to respond if their abuser is in the room or if their family is unaware of previous abuse. I mean, this absolutely falls into my no-shit Sherlock file. Sexual assaults are actually increasing, in case you were wondering, affecting just over 4% of women aged 16 to 59 in the year to March 2023, a figure that has nearly doubled since 2014. And that's reported assaults, of course. The rise is mainly driven by an increase in unwanted sexual touching, but rape and attempted rape are increasing too. Harriet Wistrich, queen of my heart and, you know, also in the Centre for Women's Justice, said relying on a definition of crime or violence that excludes what many women experience and worry about gives a distorted picture of how much safer the general public are. Mm. Women are the general public, she continued, but their experience of violence is different from men's. Further to that, Labour's Dame Diana Johnson, who chairs the Home Affairs Select Committee, said, The government must make the scale of violence against women visible when they talk about crime in the UK. Totally. And by that, I mean what totally actually means. I don't even understand that explanation there, to be honest. Women are too complicated to measure, which is, you know, the reason that sex disaggregation has not been a thing across decades and centuries, really, isn't it? It's that, well, we did this interview, we asked some questions, but they might not have told us because they might have been in front of their abusers or embarrassed to talk about it in front of their families. Like, think of a different place to ask questions then. I get that, but that's not going to be all of the missing data, is it? No, I guess not. That was just one of the reasons that they came up with. I've always wondered what crime statistics actually tell us. Because so many crimes go unreported. I mean, A, crimes like this, that for reasons of, you know, well, what we talk about on this podcast, we know why they don't get reported, like rape and domestic abuse. But also small-scale crimes, like, you know, my car was broken into, or, you know, that don't get reported now because... People don't want to take up the police's time with it, or they're not confident that they'll do anything will be about done it. By it yeah. Or they worry that it's going to go on the record and their their house price will fall, or all sorts of things like that. Yes. All right, Mickey here with an advert for Better Help Therapy Online. You all right? Such a small question, and sometimes such a big question too, eh? Now, regular listeners will know I am no stranger to depression and while over time and with the help of some decent counselling and brilliant friends and family, I've established a toolkit to help when the constantly dripping tap of life gets a bit too much. That does not mean I am a stress-free human rainbow skipping through meadows. I mean, who is? We all carry around different stresses, big and small, and sometimes we can deal and sometimes it's much harder to cope. Life, it? Right now, I have a teenage puppy to deal with, and although I love her very, very much, she can be a lot. There, said it. And as quick a fix as it seems to say, I'm fine, I'm fine, and push it all down into the big inside box and put that lid on. For me, that hasn't been a great long-term solution, in that if I don't get it off my chest, it will at some point come bubbling up, and it's never been one to pick its moments in a good way. I find talking means I can avoid it exploding out of me like a messy emotional volcano all over my nana's carpet. Also, during my various times in talk therapy, I discovered that saying something out loud or writing it down can make it seem much more manageable than allowing it to swirl around and grow ever bigger in my head. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. 
I found knowing how to reach out is sometimes the toughest bit, but BetterHelp is entirely online. Boom. Which means it couldn't be easier. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a registered therapist, then work your sessions around your schedule. With more than a thousand therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Standard issue listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash standard. That's betterhelp.com slash standard. Hello, I am joined on the Zoom by a comedian with incredible main character energy. It's Olga Koch. Thank you so much for having me. I think you have to have main character energy to be a stand-up, but I kind of think you have more than most. Do you think so? I guess that's flattering. In a job of narcissist, you seem to be even more narcissistic. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it's like, it, it's a really good swagger. You are never ashamed to be the star of your own stories. There's no humiliation. There's no regrets. I fucking love that for a woman. Thank you. I mean, I think that this is something that came with age. I think I was skeptical about things changing when I'm 30. I thought it was just an arbitrary number. I mean, I was panicked like most 20-something-year-olds, but I was also, I never thought that it would be a positive thing. Or whenever I heard any cliches about turning 30, I would always look like, this is just something people say. But I do think that there, there's been a sort of, I don't give a fuck injection that happened at 30, where I constantly feel like I'm just Jim Carrey and yes man. Uh, <laughs> for better or for worse, I have, yeah. I've never had tattoos. At 30, I have tattoos. I've tried, like, I've traveled to so many new places. I've said yes to so many more things now that I'm 30. And I do think just stop caring. And I love that feeling. And I hope that it, it just keeps getting better and better. I can assure you that it does. And it's really interesting, actually, as someone who is 47 in a couple of months, I remember turning 29 was terrifying because I was like, oh my God, 30's around the corner. And then 30 was great. And then my 30s were not the best. But 40 was liberating and I didn't have any of the anxieties that came before 30 before I turned 40. So you're on the best ride now, basically. Oh my God, that's amazing. I can't wait. I can't wait. So you are back on tour with your Edinburgh show, Prawn Cocktail. Tell us a bit about it. So as I've already alluded to it, it is very much a show about turning 30 and sort of saying yes to things. It explores uh, the story of how I met a man at a wedding in New Zealand and decided to meet him three months later after only meeting him once in Tokyo, Japan, of all places. Because it was halfway between the UK and New Zealand. That yeah, makes sense, makes right? makes sense, yeah. <laughs> That's the sort of this, the, the hook, but I think it's just generally an exploration of what I've been up to for the past couple of years. What's it like being 30? What's it like being me at 30? Well, it was like going back to university because I got a master's degree over lockdown. Just various things and how they've informed my decision-making. Or don't inform my decision-making. <laughs> We're going to get to that master's degree. But first of all, I wanted to talk about the fact that you are pretty candid about your sex life on stage, and that is part of Prawn Cocktail as well. Confident, raunchy and reckless, as Chortle would have it. Does your openness mean that people tend to overshare with you? Yes, and I wouldn't have it any other way. The amount of time that I would like meet girls who've seen my show and we just like start in medias ray. Do you know what I mean? It will just be like, okay, and, th and then he said what? That is the most thrilling feeling ever to be like, we're all in the toilet queue at the club. And that's, <laughs> that's, that's my entire audience. That's the dream. On the flip side, because you are a very good looking, funny, 
smart woman talking about sex on stage. I can only imagine the bin fire that is your DMs, Olga. I think you're both over and underestimating men because men have no trouble sexualizing someone who doesn't talk about sex on stage. So that's true. I've I've done sets about politics. I've done sets about economics. I've done sets about I don't know my journey with immigration and. The messages from the men remain the same. I mean, come on, that is a sexy topic. <laughs> now then, that masters, you are a bona fide expert in relationships in that you got a masters in parasocial relationships, which until I was researching this interview, didn't know what they were. So what are they and why did you want to study them? So my master's degree is called uh, a master's in social science of the internet. For like the first year, I didn't really know what to study just because it was like, it's such an exciting just field because you, you'd be talking about like internet laws and then you'd be talking about ordering contraband on the deep web it's like the wild west isn't it yeah it's amazing and it's like there's so many different aspects and like you could choose to talk about cybersecurity, or you could t- choose to talk about ai and so one of the things that i felt both applied to my professional life and i was really fascinated with from an academic standpoint were parasocial relationships and parasocial relationship is a term that was actually coined in the 50s about the one-sided relationships audiences at home formed with talk show hosts. Johnny Carson was one of the first people like studied as a man people developed parasocial relationships Okay. With. And so this like one-sided nature of parasocial relationships is so fascinating to me because like I obviously almost cultivate that with my audience. But then I have that relationship with other comedians or other performers or just like random people I follow online. They'll be like... Mm-hmm cousins of girls that I used to go to high school with and I'm so invested in their pregnancies and their marriages and their divorces (laughs) even though I've never met them and so to me it struck a chord on so many levels that I knew that I just wanted to spend time researching it why do we foster those relationships well I think the nature of social media is really conducive to them and I think when you really step back and think about the type of stuff we post online whether it's like photos of the inside of our houses, selfies without makeup, pictures of our families, our dogs, all that. 30 years ago, you would only have that information if it came from a friend or family member. Mm-hmm. So you can't really blame your brain for short-circuiting and assuming the person, who, the inside of whose house you see every single day, who's like cried to you about their problem or like shared their fertility journey, let's say. You can't blame your brain for thinking that they're your friend because why would you know this intimate information about them then? It's a totally fascinating subject. What was the thing that you learned that absolutely thrilled you? The biggest revelation was the distinguishing between knowing and feeling like you know someone. Because my assumption was we all just think that we know each other. When in reality, we all know we don't know each other. We just feel like we do. And there's such a difference there. First of all, it's comforting because you're like, people aren't delusional. People know they don't know each other. But also just sort of like, really eerie because you're like your your body's essentially like gaslighting you into thinking (laughs) into thinking a thing but you know rationally that it's not real incredible cognitive dissonance that we just yeah well like for example yeah if you're reading a fictional book and i character dies and you cry you know it's fiction but you're still crying so it's a similar feeling of like i know it's not real but i'm still so emotionally invested and what's the stuff that you have now digested ingested and take into your career as a comedian that you can apply That's a good question. I think I'm just like generally more cautious and skeptical of intimacy or feeling of intimacy. (laughs) Not in like... That's really sad. (laughs) Maybe it's healthy because I think it's like if we don't examine it, it's a slippery slope. And I think that's like sort of adjacent to like almost fake news where it's like 
yeah, there was a moment, there was a turning point, let's say in like 2015, 2016, where we're like, wait a second, we shouldn't really believe everything we see online. We should t- take a step back, take a beat and consider, is this real? And I think that's a similar a similar method that we can apply to relationships online. Yeah, it feels great. You feel like you know them. You're so happy that your favorite influencer got engaged, but then you got to take a beat, take a step back and be like, who the hell is this? <laughs> and that actually knowing that and knowing that about your audience and, and that hopefully they will also do that is another boundary, like a, just that little buffer that is protective for you and for them, I guess, when you're doing your stuff. What you're saying is right, but I am completely not protective of myself uh, when it comes to audiences or my own mental well-being. Like I, I wear my heart in my sleeve. In the show, I play voice notes of my own diary. Like, I am so completely an open book on stage. And I have regretted it so many times. But I've also been very happy I did it so many times. Because I think if I completely expose myself on stage, no one can hurt me, right? It's a double-edged sword being so open, I think, on stage. Because the sort of one side of it, I feel like completely free. But also very exposed. Sometimes it feels like I'm, I'm naked on stage. And sometimes there's people being like, yes. <laughs> and then sometimes I'm like, oh, I don't want you to see me naked. <laughs> so you've done your master's. Uh, I wondered if you'd do a master's for every show, but I assume like a PhD is going to be next. And I wondered if you could be a doctor of absolutely anything, what would you be a doctor of? So, I mean, it's funny that you say that it's not God of what I am applying to PhD programs. So like, I, I, it's, it's not even like a question mark. I think it's something that I've been thinking about a lot. And essentially... I would really like to study how technology is conducive to parasocial relationships. So I think I've I've studied a lot the people who develop these parasocial relationships and how do they do it. But I would really like to spend time diving into the technology itself and seeing how, let's say, like a voice out versus a video, voice with an Instagram story, creates and facilitates those parasocial relationships and attachments. That is fascinating i'm excited i hope you get it i know you'll get it oh god i hope someone will accept me i just watched just friends and obviously the key sort of story plot point of that is your thank you so much for watching it oh no thank you very much for doing it it was great um but is is your sort of attempt to get a threesome and i know that is a very loose plot line to, to bring in all of the other stuff that you that you talk about but when you do talk about sex, you are really candid about it. And I love that. I think you are just talking about it in a very matter of fact way, which feels refreshing when it probably shouldn't, right? I'm glad. It's a really like silly and uh, maybe like up my own ass thing to say. But there's a there's a routine that I did both in Front Cocktail and on Live at the Apollo. And the routine was about receiving a bad pap smear and like getting the letter from the NHS saying that you got a bad pap smear. It's a very silly bit. And I've had some people really recoil from it because basically the premise of the bit is that the NHS is, tell- is uh, emailing you saying that you're a slut. And I think <laughs> like for, like there's loads of people who are like immediately recoil from it. But equally, there are so many girls who are messaged me who said, I really needed this. I really needed this because all I know is that when I received that letter, I thought, A, I am alone because I felt so isolated and I felt so ashamed of the thing that of this bad pap smear. And then B, I thought that it was like the scariest thing in the world. I was like, oh my God, I'm going to die. Because the letter literally is like, you're going to get cervical cancer and you're literally going to die. When I wrote that routine, I was like, all I want is for the, for, for this routine, for whoever is listening to it. And for me, when I'm telling this story, for it to be clear that it is, you're not alone. And it's not scary. Because it's true. Because there's like 90% of people have it. And most people don't get cervical cancer. So it's like, I wanted to be light and silly. 
because that's what I needed in the moment of receiving that letter, if that makes sense. Absolutely. I, mean, I guess we're talking about HPV, which yeah. again was like, oh no, you don't, you don't really talk about it. And it's, of course, having stuff like that out in the open means that people feel less alone. And the amount of men that are commenting on it, they will say the most batshit stuff. And I'm like, oh my God, you have no idea how HPV works, do you? You have no idea that you have it, do you? Exactly. And I'm like, we need to be talking about this because if there are men running around thinking all this insane misinformation about HPV, that's proof that we need to be talking about so much more. So lucky that men are just totally immune to sexually transmitted diseases. They're yeah, only, yeah, yeah, it's yeah, it's yeah. weird, isn't it? It's weird. It just You've just made me think of, like, like one of the most open-minded shows about women and sex, obviously, was Sex in the City, but all of its flaws, which are, you know, well-documented in other places. There's one that really sticks out to me, and it's when Samantha goes for a HIV test, and they pull her into the little room, and she is convinced she's got AIDS. And actually, the nurse just sort of tells her off for sleeping around. What the actual fuck? You make a woman fear that she's HIV positive just because you want to have a little moral chat with her. Fucked. It's fucked. fucked. It's fucked. It's fucked. Olga, apart from coming soon to a venue near them, where can people find you? On Instagram at Colga300 and on TikTok at Colga300. Come hang out. Come say hi. And in the face, Prawn Cocktail is making its way around the country until March the 22nd and tickets are available from rockandrollga.com. I love the name of your website. Thank you. And then I'm going to Australia and New Zealand if you're around there. Thank you so much for chatting with me. Thank you so much. Hannah here. I am joined by Ola Ince, director of a new version of Othello that's playing at the Sam Wanamaker Playhouse until April the 13th. Thank you very much for joining us, Ola. My honour. We were just talking about this, but I'm going to go through it again. I saw this last Thursday and I thought it was absolutely cracking. Thank you, Hannah. The last time I saw Othello, I saw it at the National, the Clint Dyer version with oh, yeah. Giles Torreira, which was also absolutely cracking. But I was a long way away. I was <laughs> at the back. It's so small. It's so tight. It's You're so in it when you're in the Sam Wanamaker. I thought it was an incredible experience and I thought everyone was amazing, but I just wanted to say, I thought your you musicians were absolutely brilliant. <laughs> they probably don't get noticed much up there, do they? You know they're doing their job if they don't get noticed, really. I yeah, think. exactly. And they work really hard and they're part of the team and they're lovely. It's nice sitting in the green room with them. Exceptionally talented and very humble. So can I ask you to perhaps give listeners a slight peek behind the curtains of how it works. Do you think I want to do Othello or do the Sam Wanamaker think I want to do Othello? So it goes, the Globe call me up and say, do you want to do Othello? And I say, yeah, I want to do Othello. <laughs> and they say, how do you want to do Othello? And I think about what it is that I want my production to say and do. And they go, yeah, do what you want. It's my experience of the globe. They're very open to me, which is brilliant. It means I get to have like full creative freedom, which sometimes can be really scary at the last moment. I'm like, what have I done? (laughs) (laughs) My job as a journalist is to ask obvious questions. And I don't think that there's a more obvious question than the one I'm just about to ask, which is why set Othello in the police force? I was trying to find a world or a situation in which I thought, that being a woman in a working environment 
could be really toxic, uh, could be dangerous, and in which people could maybe treat you in a way that could be deemed old-fashioned, where men were objectifying you and were quite possessive over you, where that felt like, yeah, this could definitely happen now. I also was thinking about a space in which there weren't that many black people and in which it was possible to um, climb up the ladder, climb up the ranks, but also um, difficult and painful and strenuous. And for me, that world was the Metropolitan Police Force or just the police force. And speaking to actors about um, the play, especially women, they were going, would I say that? Would you say that now? Would that happen now? And that was the one world we could all agree on, which those things would still happen. Mm. And no one would bat an eyelid. Yeah, that's so interesting because I've seen Othello a lot and my dad was really into Shakespeare, um, but I come from a really working class background. And when you, when you first see Othello, which for me was probably, I mean, almost certainly on videos, you ask all the questions, you know, why does he believe Iago? Why does he kill Desdemona? And I find the older that I get, the less I ask those questions. <laughs> but it does always make me think, and yours in particular really made me think of imposter syndrome because I am riddled, absolutely riddled with it. But a lot of times I've been the only woman in the room and there's been a lot of times I've been the only working class person in the room. I see how bad my imposter syndrome is. The version I saw on Thursday was different to the version that was reviewed. And I immediately thought, oh, well, I've misunderstood something. No, I've reviewed theatre for years. I immediately thought, well, the person at The Guardian must have understood that better than I understood it. But in fact, I just saw a slightly different version on Thursday. So I think you really grasp that in this. You really grasp that, what it is to be surrounded by people that are different to you. Yeah. No, hey, thank you. The irony of that is, of course, this is the play, the Shakespeare, that you can perhaps most discuss race. But it's also the Shakespeare that's the whitest because everybody surrounding Othello is white. You've actually tackled that slightly differently. You do have a second black man on stage. Perhaps you could explain that to our listeners. So preparing for this production, I did a bit of research and I was thinking about when Shakespeare originally wrote this play, why he wrote it, what he was trying to say, because it can sometimes feel like Iago's play and not Othello's. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I was going, yeah, why is it called Othello? And is Othello really a tragic hero or is he the fool of the play or what's going on here? Because the play, some actors have said that have played Othello, feels like a play that is racist as opposed to a play about racism. Uh-huh. And so I wanted to make sure that this production was a play about racism and it wasn't going to highlight racist stereotypes and reinforce them, like the kind of black stud or black men being aggressive or this kind of crazy black person on stage. And so I thought the only way to really do that is to always show Othello in his complete self So not just show what he presents, because that's not necessarily Mm -hmm. really how he feels, but also show what's going on in his interior. So that's why there are two Othellos, is to make sure that he's always seen in the most humane way. And we always understand what it is he's going through, what it means to feel like you're under attack or feel like you're being 
um, abused or cheated on and how how painful that is, as well as how kind of maddening it is. And that when he kills Desdemona, spoiler, sorry, <laughs> he's also killing a part of himself. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I'm not wanting to take away, as a woman, the misogyny of it all. I actually want that to exist alongside what it means to be a black man in that space as well. Because to be clear, it's very much about being within the system, not how the system goes outwards, if, if you know what I mean. Yeah. It, it, in case anyone thinks it's about, you know, police's interactions with the outside world, this is all very much what's happening on the inside. In fact, you make an in- incredible point at the end, which I won't spoil for people, which is just almost a throwaway comment, which is a headline that somebody <laughs> reads out, which really does sort of sum up your whole thesis brilliantly. It does mean that you're putting stuff in. I wonder how do you feel about there are the purists out there? Do you just decide to just throw caution to the wind and ignore them and just go in and change the dialogue where necessary? I mean, we haven't actually changed that much. We have cuts quite a bit, but not a lot of the text has changed. There's things like going from Chelsea rather than Venice to Chelsea, for example, rather than referring to the Turks, we refer to a cartel called the Lurks. I just embrace it. It's about making the world as vivid and alive and accessible and interesting as possible. I sometimes find it strange when productions don't fully go there because we're all dressed up like we're somewhere and then we just start talking about something that's so archaic that it's like, what was the point? Uh, You might as well have stuck there. And people hate everything. Yeah. (laughs) So I have to just do what I think is... um, yeah right and true and there are I mean I haven't read any reviews or haven't really got a clue apart from what I see when I'm sitting in the auditorium how people react to the show it's all I kind of going off of um and people seem to especially young people like really delight in being able to follow the show and really delight in how well not delight but realize how relevant the the story still is today and that's because they feel like they I have had a lot of comments of people saying I've never understood this before and now I get it oh that's amazing yeah and we haven't done anything down we haven't like going from you know lurks to turks isn't brain surgery <laughs> no so I think embrace there's a school party in which is one of the great things about going to a matinee is that you uh there's generally some kids in there and when I was in the necessarily long toilet queue at uh, in the <laughs> interval, which always happens in theatres, they were really engaged with it. They were really engaged with it. And I thought about what I went to see when I was at school, which was we went to the Barbican to see Macbeth, of which I can remember almost nothing about, except I was bored. <laughs> Thank you. I'm glad. And I just think, yeah, especially when you're working at somewhere like The Globe, people expect certain things and... That's not what the Globe expect of me. So I'm just, you know, I don't think I'm doing Shakespeare a disservice. I don't think I'm ruining anything. I think I'm doing his play. And I think he was a really radical thinker. And he made work that was exciting and daring and fresh. And I don't think he'd want me to not do this, try and do the same. Yeah, well, exactly that. What's next for you? I'm hoping that I get to make some films in the future. But for now, I am... I'm reading and I'm hanging out with young people. I'm working on the NT Connections project, the National Do. Oh, excellent. I get to watch loads of cool 
young people do their shows and give their directors notes on their mentor director. So that's quite fun. Yeah, I bet. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time, Ola. Just to remind people, Sam Watermaker until April the 13th, although I do know for a fact that's a little theatre, so that is selling well already. So people are, <laughs> are going to have to get in there. Do you just let it go? Is it like, you know, raising uh, an animal and then releasing it into the wild? I'm trying to do that. I'm learning to do that. I think that's the best way to be. Yeah. It's like otherwise you just become absorbed in things that aren't that important. And you forget that art is subjective and that art is like I'm always saying I want to make shows that start conversations. And they can't all be positive ones. That's that. That's very true. Well, this one was, and I was very glad to have it. Thank you, Ola. Thank you. You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. Welcome to Jenny off the blocks, that time of the week where we high-five the patriarchy as we discuss all things women's sport. Now, you weren't expecting me to say that, were you? And I'll come back to that in a minute because, first of all, I have an apology to make. So, look, I've been doing the rounds this morning looking for stories about women's sport. And as per usual, I found loads about football and loads about new sponsorship deals and viewing figures for women's sport. And I have previously reported on these and I won't pretend like I'm never going to report on them again if they're really interesting or really significant. But I'm going to tell you now, I'm going to try to report on them less. Don't get me wrong, it's great that women's sport is growing, but you already know that. And the chances are, if you're listening to this and you haven't just skipped forward a few minutes, you're already interested or at least think it's worth being supportive of in the name of women's rights and equality. I don't need to know that more people are watching. I'm one of them, so give me something to satisfy my actual interests. Please don't let that something else be what an irrelevant man says on the internet for clout and clicks. I don't care. Give me match reports, give me interviews, give me analysis, give me something. So that is what I'm going to try and do on here. I can't do much about football. It's the national sport and also I love it. But if there's something you want to hear more about, hit me up. I'm on Twitter as at InspiredGen and Instagram as at GenOff. Two N's, two F's. Right, now to talk about football. Big news and great news regarding the Lionesses. Number one, Leah Williamson is back in the England squad after nine months out with an ACL injury for friendlies against Austria and Italy later on in the month. As regular listeners will know, she's already made her Arsenal comeback and she's been building up time on the pitch as she continues that gradual return. We don't know if she'll return to captaincy duties, but what a leader and what a role model. She's been maintaining quite a solid visibility while she's been out and doing fantastic things to promote the women's game. Number two, and related to this, the number of women's and girls registered football teams in England have doubled in the last seven years, according to reports last week. Now, yes, OK, that's a stat, but my reason for including it is because of this. I think this is what it's all about. I want to see that growth in interest in viewers. I want to see that manifest as more active women and girls enjoying all the health and social benefits of sport that have been there for the taking for men since, you know, forever. Now, speaking of men and positive change in football, which I don't say in the same sentence that often, I want to talk about a news story from the last week regarding Camden and Islington United, or Candy as they're known. It's a community-owned football club based in North London, as the name would suggest. And they're more than a football club. They carry out 
loads of work in their local community. They have free football sessions, etc. They are good lads and indeed lasses. They have a women's team and, you know, women are involved in the running of the clubs. The brilliant Cat Craig is their chair and indeed one of the club's founders. So they hit the headlines last week after their men's team stood down from their then upcoming match in the Sunday Wembley Cup, of which they are the reigning title holders. And they did this to boycott misogyny and abuse in football. Basically, in a nutshell, they found out that their opponents, MHFC, were actually called Manta Hunters FC, and as well as apparently having a very loose grasp on current standards of social acceptability and indeed humour, or perhaps as further evidence of this, who knows, they'd posted quite a few things on social media that were, shall we say, not in the spirit of the game. They were, of course, horrible photos and expressions related to women, because fuck those bitches, right? After a disappointing response by the London Football League, who they'd asked to investigate the matter, which was basically play the match or forfeit it, Candy withdrew. They said, There's no room for misogyny in football. We stand proudly and firmly against all forms of discrimination and shoulder to shoulder with those who continue to strive for a safe and inclusive game. That's how you do it, lads. Fingers crossed for a swift resolution and that they will get the chance to defend their title. That's all for me this week. I'll be back next time with more women's and possibly men's sport. Welcome, slot taping ghetto blaster, to rated <laughs> dramatic 80s music or dated dance montage. Jen, backflip fight. What film did we watch this week? <laughs> this week we watched 1984 teen romp Footloose, starring a young Kevin Bacon in his breakthrough role, who, as far as I'm aware, I have no connection to, alongside an equally young Sarah Jessica Parker, Laurie Singer, and hang on, Diane Weist and John Lithgow? <laughs> what? Writer Dean Pitchford came up with the idea after reading a story about an Oklahoma town, Elmore City, which had just lifted an 80-year dancing ban. What? I know, I know, and I'm, I'm going to come back to this, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> Flake off, Jen, Flake off! <laughs> a man of many talents, Pitchford was also something of a lyricist and collaborated with Kenny Loggins et al. on the soundtrack. A big ka for him... Both the album and the film landed at number one in their respective charts. The album shifted Michael Jackson's thriller off the top spot and there it remained for 10 weeks, ultimately selling more than 17 million copies because people are only humans. Yeah. There's no surprise here, Jen. I think it was, it was a worthy winner. Agreed. Indeed, the soundtrack was nominated for a handful of awards. The acting, well, less said about that, the better... In fact, both the titular song Footloose, performed by Loggins, Hannah is making a face as if she doesn't agree with that. Footloose, performed by Loggins, and Let's Hear It For The Boy by Denise Williams were nominated for Best Original Song at the Oscars. They lost out to Stevie Wonder's worst song, I Just Called To Say I Love You. Yeah. Robbed. Let's look at the plot. Town Mouse Wren, played by Bacon, relocates with his family from Chicago to Beaumont in Buttfuck Nowhere. They be godly in Beaumont, and Wren meets Reverend Shaw Moore, his Mrs. Vi, and instantly dislikable daughter Ariel at the church. <laughs> oh my god. She be a rebel. That's not the word that I would have chosen. <laughs> no, it's not the word I, I WhatsApp to make either. <laughs> 
Upon starting school, Wren makes the acquaintance of simple country boy and bare-knuckle fighter Willard, who tells him about the town's ban on dancing and rock music because God and that. God doesn't like music, or gyrating and that. But it turns out the ban was actually put in place after Ariel's brother and the Reverend's son died in a car accident after a night out drinking booze, which I would say is crucial to this, and to a lesser degree, dancing. It's a problem because Ren loves to dance. Maybe Rebel Ariel would like to dance. Oh, she's off to dance with him, Willard and BFF Rusty in a nearby bar full of old people. There's nearly a fight because Willard can't dance and feels inadequate. The best training montage I've ever seen ensues. (laughs) It's just incredible. Uh, Who put that gymnast bar in a garage? What the fuck is going on? (laughs) And the crazy thing is, it seems to take place over a number of weeks, but the rest of the plot continues at the same speed. Absolutely. He sort of infiltrates Flashdance for a bit and then he goes back <laughs> yeah. to Footloose. Incredible scenes. Ren and Ariel grow close. Ariel's shit boyfriend Chuck beats her up. Ren and Ariel grow closer and with their powers combined, they approach the town council to ask that the ban be lifted on the grounds that... <clears throat> Dance then, wherever you may be. <laughs> I am the lord of the dance city. And I dance wherever there And I lead you all wherever you may be. And I'll lead you all in the dance. dance. Yeah. Oh, my God. Who would have thought that would happen? That's like one of the most like (laughs) excruciating moments of Only Connect there. (laughs) But anyway. (laughs) The town council say, who cares about the Bible? Oh, hang on. Wait. People start setting fire to books and the Reverend wonders, where will this censorship end? And says they can have a dance after all, just not in his backyard. They have a dance. Chuck comes to fight, but... All that dancing has made Bacon a dab hand with a kung fu kick. <laughs> and <laughs> Willard beat up about 10 people. They go back into the hall and they dance to Footloose. Where did they learn those quite advanced dance moves, we wonder? In a montage, I would imagine, Jed. Yeah, totally a montage. Probably Phil Collins. Yeah. The montage. fucking robot guy. You're like, I mean, you've not learnt that by reading the Bible, have you, mate? <laughs> So, I've already mentioned it opened at number one in the box office. It made $80 million from a budget of about 7.5. But more than that, and perhaps this does speak of the issues we've been having finding rated or dated picks this month, it also became the highest grossing February film release in history. Wow. Interesting. At the time, I don't think it is still the highest grossing, but uh, yeah, it's been a bit bleak, hasn't it, lads? Anyway... Critically speaking, reviews were mixed, but I think it's fair to say that Roger Ebert probably wasn't the intended audience. Although, if you're interested, he said the film was, and I quote, seriously confused, adding that the movie attempts to do three things and does all of them badly. Was he right? I'm sure we'll all have thoughts. Now, I had never seen this film before. I think you both have, right? I have never seen Footloose before. I have seen... Probably the first half and then the second half, maybe 10 years later. No, I've never sat down to watch the whole of Footloose. <laughs> I've seen the the meme or the gif of Kevin Bacon going, what are we doing? This is a party. <laughs> like about 108 million times. So. so my first thought was about how fucking wild the premise of this film is. I don't think it is wild though. Actually. Right. So I didn't realise, obviously, that it was based on a true story. Although, like, you know, obviously it's America. So you're like, I mean, yeah, I suppose so. And apparently it really did happen. But I was wondering throughout, 
why didn't we assess this in Dunleavy Does Dystopia? Because that is basically the situation I, I we have I actually here. think that if you go on Twitter and just put school board meeting in and just Google, you will see some wild shit happening at school board meetings all over America, but particularly like in the South where people are arguing about things like books that are going into libraries that are pro-LGBT and stuff like that. And I actually think with that bit of context that actually this film doesn't feel dated in that sense at all. The bit where they're, where they're literally discussing which books people should be reading felt pretty spot on or topical, I thought. Well, Hannah, that's I was going to ask you about the uh, censorship aspect of it, because obviously, you know, there are discussions about books and things like that. They start burning books yeah. in this film. And I was thinking about like purity spirals and shit like that. And uh, I mean, obviously, that's a slightly different thing. But I was thinking about all of that stuff. And I was wondering, do you think that this is a tale for our times in some ways? I think it's a tale for all times, yeah, Jen. No, no, it's, no. A, it's a classic. <laughs> it's an absolute classic. And Roger Ebert was very, very wrong. Let's burn him. No, let's not burn anything. Yeah, I, it's absolutely nail on head that moral standards and what people think they should be able to impose on other people. It's not, it's not a thing that's gone away, is it? I think burning books is bad, guys. There, I said it. I agree. Yeah. Although, interestingly... Like, there are a lot of other issues in this that would totally date it, obviously. I think the domestic violence, sort of the way that's dealt with in this is is kind of appalling, but it's just yeah. not addressed, is it? It just happens and then everybody just yeah. moves on. What, the fight that they have, that well, he Well, he beats her, her up, yeah. Well, she, she hits him first. Yeah, but she to be fair, he does go very, very far. Oh, yeah, he really kicks the shit out of her. And then Kevin Bacon's a bit like, no, nah, you look all right. Yeah. yeah. He doesn't seem <laughs> yeah. bothered by it. Yeah. Like, he doesn't need to white knight or anything, but just a bit of that was out of order would have been. Let's take her to the hospital to be checked out, maybe. Get this on record that this has happened. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Totally. Yeah. He doesn't seem the smartest anyway, her boyfriend, though, because how long does it take him to notice that she's hanging out with him? Like I say, that whole Chris (laughs) Penn dancing montage has happened and then he notices. Yeah, but I don't think he's supposed to be the sharpest tool in the box, is he? Old Chuck. I think he's just, he's exciting to her, isn't he? Because she's a bellend. She's very much like, you didn't watch it, but in a way, she's like a uh, a poor woman's Sybil Shepherd from the last picture house. Yeah, too popular for her own good. It's all gone to her head. Fame is a monster. Mean girl. Uh, <laughs> yeah, awful. She, I hated her. I didn't want Kevin Bacon to get with Ariel. She's awful. She's not a little mermaid. She's a cunt. She's literally like, oh, this guy's one, so I'm going to go after him now. Yeah, totally. <laughs> Also, which brings me to a very important question. Why do these kids have access to such a wide variety of vehicles? Yes. They're in cars, they're on tractors, they're on motorbikes at one point. They're just riding around on anything. Isn't that what you do in the middle of nowhere? I think People so. just drive like a variety of inappropriate vehicles. And also the past. Yeah. Yeah. But how old are they supposed to be? Because clearly they're all older than me in real life. But what? what? age are they like 17 18 yeah about 17 i guess where are they getting the money for cars no they'd just be old shit things that they've found somewhere <laughs> in that garage with the gymnast <laughs> equipment <laughs> it'd just be like old stuff they found on a farm or whatever i don't know that's what happens isn't it in rural places i don't know tractor chicken is now my new favorite way to settle an argument though <laughs> basically like i say this is cribbed 
from almost every film about teenagers. So that's come from Rebel Without a Cause. She's come from The Last Picture Show. There's just like loads and loads of sort of cribbing. There doesn't seem to be anything particularly original in this. And it also comes after Flashdance, so it's clearly a money grab in some way of like trying to capitalise on on something that has been popular. That's why I didn't watch Footloose when it came out, because I was really, really, as previously discussed on this podcast, inappropriately into Flashdance. <laughs> She's a stripper and a welder. Sign me up. Doesn't strip though, does she? She puts more clothes on. Who's this Johnny come lately with his fancy footwear and his, yeah. his moves? But I love the the dance montage in this is, is so incredible. But I mean, just the montage at the start, I sent a message to Mickey and said, this looks like an advert for Freeman Hardy and Willis. Just all those shoes at the start. Yeah. My favourite bit in the montage is, is the one where they're getting the dance ready and they're all moving the stuff. <laughs> There's like nine of them in the line to or me, something. To you. But they're all so closely packed together. Two of them could have left and like just gone and done something else useful. It's just so smiling and passing was my favourite thing in this whole film. It's incredible. I had such a nice time. Can I just say, in in defence of a couple of things, I would say that Kevin Bacon is great in this because he actually does so good. dance and does gymnastics and all of that. But I think Diane Weist is amazingly good in this film. I love her. From virtually yeah. nothing, she conjures all sorts of emotion from virtually nothing. It's such an underwritten role. I love her in it. Yeah, I'm not going to grab a tractor and like offer you out for this because I agree <laughs> wholeheartedly. I-, I have to say, I don't really understand. Laurie Singer, she just, I, I just don't really get it. She she can't act really very well. She's got no rhythm. She's really not very good at the dancing stuff. I suppose she's fit, but she's not sort of, I would say, conventionally beautiful. In fact, I think she's kind of strange looking. I don't really understand why they picked her for this. Someone who could move a lot better than her would have been the obvious pick for me. She's got quite 80s face, hasn't she? She's got a sort of look about her that is very of that time. She's kind a of bit like, like Daryl Hannah. Like she could be. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. She looks like Daryl Hannah. She looks like there's a bunch Kim of Basinger, women of yeah. that era. Like all very attractive, but all kind of could almost be interchangeable, if you see what I mean. Idea for film. Someone makes collage out of different faces from an 80s magazine. <laughs> collage comes to life. <laughs> I think someone's already made that film. It's kind of like Mannequin, but different. Yeah. <laughs> or Take On Me. Shut up, both of you. It's brilliant. <laughs> Dance montage. I mean, I've got to say, absolutely first time ever that I've watched something where Sarah Jessica Parker has been one of the least annoying characters in this. Or has played <laughs> one of the least annoying characters in something. Yeah. She called Rusty, isn't it? They've got really weird names. It's Rusty and Woody. Woody, Woody who is a grown man of like uh. 35 with a moustache. Like, why is he at school? And R.I.P. Chris Penn, but man, I again, I messaged Mickey to say, this film is Chris Penn could almost do the splits. <laughs> I mean, wowzers. Yeah, I loved him in this. He's a bit aggy, he's a bit fighty, I know, I know, but he's just a, he's a small town boy and he, he wants to learn to dance, guys. He wants to learn to dance. And the joy of the montage where Kevin Bacon is teaching him to dance is oh yeah what what a pain to male friendship uh. that is if only more boys could share their emotions and moves in that way i think we'd be living in a less war-torn world guys i would like to see it incidentally the role of wren was first offered to elton john john travolta tom <laughs> tom cruise oh who was busy and thank fuck that he was because i mean 
Kevin Bacon's a huge part of Ren's appeal, isn't he? Because he is a funny looking fella, isn't he? I think it would have really been a very different kind of vibe if it had been Tom Cruise or Rob Lowe, who was also apparently up for the part. He's got a real goofy charm, hasn't he? Kevin Bacon, not Tom Cruise, obviously. And when he breaks into a smile, it's really quite contagious. Kevin Bacon's interesting because he obviously tried very hard to get away from this. And he did sort of end up playing a number of like really unpleasant characters. Like he plays a paedophile in The Woodsman and things like that. I think he tried really hard to not be the Footloose guy. And now he does phone company adverts. Well, funnily enough, my Wi-Fi went down when I started watching this. I was like, oh my God, Footloose has broken the internet. And it's somewhat ironic because my brother has Wi-Fi with the company that Kevin Bacon advertises. And a couple of years ago, when he was in lockdown, my nephew went to a stage that every time their Wi-Fi was down, he would send a message to uh, Kevin Bacon and say, I'm trying to watch Footloose, so my Wi-Fi is down. Did he ever get a reply? No. Uh, And I told him we should stop because he might end up getting blocked or, you know, reported or something for harassment. But it was very funny at the time because he was very young and I think he was just being cheeky. I'm trying to watch Footloose again, mate, and the Wi-Fi's down. Can you do anything about it? I love that. I think, yeah, and Kevin Bacon has gone full circle back to cheese, hasn't he? And yeah. Because there's no doubt that Footloose is cheesier than cheddar. It is so cheesy. 80s cheese. The most yeah. cheesy of cheese. Do we want to say anything about the women other than what we've already said? One of them is unlikable, one of them is fantastic, and the other one is... Well, it's a fantastic right performance, there. but I don't think it's it's that great a written role. She's basically like emotional support wife, isn't she? Mm. I think she actually that's what she calls herself, basically, uh, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I've been yeah. an emotional support wife for 20 years. And Ariel's just awful. Just awful. You both had a nice time, right? Come on. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was oh yeah, funny. Yeah. I laughed quite a lot. I laughed a lot. To myself. Yeah. I'm like, I don't know it's supposed to be funny right now, but this is brilliant. I was really surprised by it because I'd never watched it before. I didn't really know anything about it. I knew it was about dancing. I didn't know that they were living in this weird place where like they they weren't allowed to dance. I just thought it would be like, you know, boy learns to dance. Mm, yeah. And that was basically it. But he could already dance. He he does teach another boy to dance. But, you know, I didn't realise it was going to have this whole, like, weird, religious, moral, blah, 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 kind of, like, subplot. Well, it's not even really a subplot, is it? But, like, angle to it. I was not expecting that at all. So I was a bit like, this is a lot more mental (laughs) than I was expecting it to be. But also, like, quite a lot. And I'm not saying that they did this well, but it quite a lot deeper than I thought it was going to be. And they do actually, whether for good or for bad, I'm not saying, but they do actually sort of manage to keep this in a place where ultimately they beat Jesus with Jesus. Yeah. So religious people could perhaps come away and feel like they'd been vindicated and sort of lefties or, you know, young people could come away and also feel like they'd been vindicated. So I suppose it does have its cake and eat it in that sense. Absolutely. I was also surprised, Jen. I didn't realise he was going to have these religious undertones. And I pressed pause and went into the kitchen and just said to Gary, it's set in a town where they've made dancing illegal. (laughs) And then left again. (laughs) So yeah, I was surprised by that. Right, so I'm going to ask the question. Rated or dated? Rated. It means very, very dated. But I, I really had a nice time. And I do think there are some things in it that still stand up. Don't burn books. 
Yeah, I'm sort of midway between the two. I, it kind of hurts to say the word rated. <laughs> what if you sang and, and did a little dance while you said yeah, it? Yeah, but I suppose it, it, it does what it says on the tin. Yeah, go on then. Rated. Yes. Let's get footloose, Jen. I feel the same, very much stuck in the middle with the two of you. Or maybe you, Hannah. Mickey seems a bit more sold on her choice. I choose my choice. Fair enough. I think the timeless, enduring appeal of Kenny Loggins, I've got to give it a rated. Incredible scenes. What's I choose my choice? What's that from, Mickey? Sex in the City, isn't it? I choose my choice. <laughs> I choose my choice. No, I'm channeling Charlotte York there. I'm sorry, Hannah. Please forgive me. I think you might forgive me because of my choice of film for next week's Rated or Dated because we are going to be watching Mel Brooks' classic, question mark, western, question mark, Blazing Saddles. Punch his horse in face. Standard Issue for All Women.